0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. I'm Likreshi Guftachima, your host for the New Books Network. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Matthew Hall, Jeff Hearn, and Ruth Lewis, who will talk to us about their super cool book, Digital Gender Sexual Violations, Violence, Technologies, Motivations, which was published by Rutledge in October 2022. Um, Matthew Hall hasn't been able to join us at the start of this conversation, but he might join us in the middle. So um, once he joins us, then we'll be able to introduce him and ask him a couple of questions as well. But till then, we are just going to move forward with Jeff and Ruth and ask them a couple of questions. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today. Could you please tell our audience about yourself and your work a little bit?
1: Okay, well, I'm I'm Jeff. I'm Jeff Hearn. I'm uh, sitting in Helsinki and uh, I guess I could say that I've worked on issues around violence, particularly gender-related violence and sexual violence for well, actually a very long time and I think maybe from the late 70s, <laughs> as long as that. And um, I suppose I should also say formally, I'm actually linked to three universities, which is a bit weird, but that's the fact. So one is in in Helsinki at Hankins School of Economics, another one is in Sweden called Uppsala University in the middle of Sweden, and then in the UK, where I'm from originally, uh, University of Huddersfield in the north of England. Okay, is that all right for a start? Yes, yes. You like.
2: <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Ruth, could you introduce yourself, please? Sure. So I'm Ruth Lewis, and I'm uh, sitting in just outside Newcastle in the northeast of England, and I'm an associate professor at Northumbria University.
0: Thank you so much. So, could you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book? How did you start working on it? How did you all come together for the idea?
1: Should I begin again, Ruth, or no? I mean, <laughs> how to keep this short? Is it a, well? Uh, as I said, I mean, I. I've been working on violence a long time and on what you might call uh, technological or digital issues from around the late 90s. But then Matthew Hall um, and I met, actually, in a taxi in Iceland about five, six years ago. (laughs) And uh, Matthew said, oh, would you like to work together on what was then, you could say, colloquially called revenge pornography. It's a really bad term um but then we actually did decide to use that term uh, and explain it for an earlier book five six years ago um and then we continued being in touch and then i don't know well should i pass over to you ruth this point sure, what happened sure. next <laughs> by these sort of chance encounters that have happened yes. in different places um,
2: so i've been working on um issues around violence against women and gender-based violence or well since the early 90s and I think um Jeff you and I did meet in Manchester at some point in the 80s or 90s
1: yeah I Um, think so maybe a couple of times on some panels yeah I think so yes
2: and and then the three of us met um in uh in Helsinki at a at a conference there about three years ago um pre-covid where in the days when you could actually uh, go to conferences and see each other and at the conference then um jeff and matthew were doing a presentation that was in part about upskirting and at the time i i was also doing some work about upskirting and there weren't many people doing that work so it was it was just great to um to make that connection um and we started working on a, on a number of things, including a project about upskirting. And then I was really delighted when the two of you invited me to join with you in doing a second edition of your book, Revenge Pornography. Um, uh, and and that, that's how we all, all um, started out on the book, really.
1: Yeah, although I think if I jump in, I, I wouldn't say it's a second edition, actually, <laughs> in some ways. It's actually a very different book. and uh, Not least the title is very different as well. And uh, I think we've struggled for a long time about how the term revenge pornography is used in the media a lot and used in newspapers and, and culturally. But it's a re- as I said earlier, it's a really bad term, actually, for very, all sorts of reasons. And uh, we try and recognise that. So I guess what we've been doing in is... Is looking at a, a wider, a broader range of different violences and violations and abuses, uh, both in other work and also in this particular book. Yeah.
0: Cool. Thank you. And now that you have mentioned it, um, would you also elaborate a little bit about like why you think the term uh, revenge pornography is problematic and how people should approach
2: it?
1: Do you want to go, Ruth, or should I? I don't mind.
2: Um, Well, why don't you? Because it's um, you know it's the title that you've used Um, in your previous book. I think
1: I think the first thing. Well, I mean, I think there are several arguments. And I think one is just saying that it's it's a term that became popular, you might say, and fairly well used. I guess around I don't know exactly, but maybe maybe ten years ago. I'm not sure. Um, But I mean, one of the problems is that by by using the word pornography, it if you like pornographizes, what has been what has been done? I mean, I mean, it puts it into that frame. And a lot of online digital abuse or abuse of partners or ex-partners is not about that, and it's actually redefining something um, in a very sort of inappropriate way. And of course, another. I mean, again, I mean, the word revenge, I and mean, one could t- discuss. And of course, some of these activities and of course they're mainly by men I mean you know not not 100% perhaps but I don't know maybe 90% I don't know um, some are about revenge and some are about other kinds of motivation um, and then there's also an argument that a different argument coming from a different direction that that all or most or much pornography is a kind of revenge on women or a certain kinds of pornography there are many kinds of pornography of course so um, I think whenever we've used it, at least in recent years, we've tried to put in inverted commas and then perhaps explain how they're are... The problem is, and we discussed this in the book quite a bit, terminology is quite a problem actually in this area without getting too pedantic <laughs> in itself. Um, because, I mean, there are lots of terms like, you know, technologically facilitated intimate partner abuse. I mean, that could be one phrase, but that's five words, isn't it, I think. So it's not, and then, you know, or, uh, you know, online, online partner or ex-partner violation or, and so on One have all sorts of different terms. And I guess one of the things is that they're not always so easy to say quickly, but we are talking about different kinds of violations. Yeah, not all, not all to do with partners or ex-partners, actually, but we, I guess we'll come to that a bit, for, a bit later, yeah. Do you want to add, do you want to add to that, Bruce?
2: I mean, no, no. I think. Opinion. Well, I suppose the only other thing to say is that um, the term revenge can be read as victim blaming as well, because revenge suggests that there has been some offence or some behaviour to take offence at. That you that the perpetrators are responding to, and that and it suggests some sort of justification. Um, so for, for that and all the reasons that Jeff has said, then that that term is problematic because we're talking about, you know, abuse, violation, violence, rather than um, something which can be consensual, like pornography. Right. Thank and
1: just you. To, Thank I you can I add time. to that? Is yes. it, if we go into the just tell us. But, I mean, I mean, one of the. One of the things that, and this is looking mainly at uh, how at least some men online sort of describe what they're doing in this kind of activity, there is very often a kind of reversal going on where that they see themselves as a kind of victim to justify and legitimate those kinds of abuses and violence. So that is a kind of... Um, yeah, you could call it like an inversion of some kind, I mean, arguably, yeah. Great, yeah.
0: Right, yeah. Thanks for explaining that. So um, how would you describe this book to the audience?
2: Well, we are, um, we're trying to give an, um, a kind of up-to-date examination of a range of different forms of, of digital violations. So we talk in detail about some particular forms, But before that, we try to um, to sort of position these forms of violation in their social context and to theorise them, to consider issues around terminology, like Jeff has mentioned, um, to um, think also about how we measure, how we research these, um, these issues. So we're, we look at um, the kind of sort of theoretical explanations of how, um, or, or rather what, what purpose um, digital gender sexual viol- violations serve and how we might understand them. You know, we, we use this term digital gender sexual violations, which I don't think is used more widely elsewhere. And we, we break down what we mean by each of those parts and why this terminology is um, is an alternative to other terms like revenge pornography or image- based pornography or um, online abuse you know all of which have a have some value but this this term digital gender sexual violations it we think is a really useful kind of umbrella term for all of those different types and so then we, we uh, look at in detail, at some empirical data about some different sorts of um, digital gender sexual violations. So we look at online abuse of feminists, upskirting, so-called revenge pornography, as well as a range of, of others. Um, and, and here we're, we're drawing on empirical data from research that we've done together or in various combinations of of uh, the three of us. And we're, we're providing information both from the... Um, a victimological perspective so victims experiences and examining perpetrators and how they engage so for example the chapter on upskirting looks at how perpetrators um, on uh, dedicated websites for upskirting how they engage with each other about upskirting so it tells us a lot about upskirting as a phenomenon but also a lot about about men's what we call um, homosociality and their desire for kind of kudos and status with each other um, So we're, we're looking empirically we're looking from a, a you know both perspective of perpetrators and of victims and then the final section is um, about some wider implications we look a bit at some of the sort of policy, um, socio-legal implications of uh, this form of digital um, violation. You know, we we don't. It's not a book about about policies and and what to do about these violations, how to eradicate them from our worlds. Um, but we we make some suggestions about kind of effective interventions. So that is a is a brief overview. Jeff, um, feel free to.
1: Yeah, I think that was really good, actually. Yeah, I mean, um I, th- I just say a word about the. About the title, again, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we use the word digital rather than online. I think it's to get, well, there are several reasons again, but it's partly to get away from the idea that these violations are only about, say, somebody sending an abusive email or. or, or um, yeah sending images around by iphones i mean obviously that's really important that's not the only possibility and increasingly actually the technology is perhaps moving away from that in terms of things like virtual reality and so on um which we discussed briefly in the book uh, not primarily and then this middle bit that (laughs) we've had sort of debates on this amongst the three of us and uh we use this term gender hyphen sexual as as like one one word and this actually actually goes back to a long debate in fact I remember um Stanley and Sue Wise wrote about this I think in the maybe late 70s early 80s about how you know how does one sometimes see something as gendered or sexual or or both if you understand drawing a line is a bit difficult and impossible in some situations. And then we use the word violation. I mean, that's, again, one could debate this long, but, I mean, sometimes violence is used in very particular ways. Obviously, physical violence is what comes to mind usually for many people, but also sometimes violence is used in relation to intention, sorry, the intention to harm, yeah, intending to harm, which is a bit different talking about, the experience of violation, which may or may not be intended, if that makes sense. Um, so, I mean, yeah, we go through this kind of thing in, in the beginning of the book and then hopefully follow it through with some of the examples that Ruth mentioned and then some of the sort of broader implications towards the end.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I do agree on the terminology just because um, I was working on a book and that was like one of the you know biggest things that I had to contest with is like, how do you be specific, but also at the same time, like be comprehensive in a way, like when you refer to these ideas. So I really appreciated that you paid um, a lot of attention to just kind of like clarifying the terms that you're using and what do you mean specifically by those terms. So um, you mentioned that you have been working on Violence, gender, sexual violence, pornography—for some time. Which changes have you observed in the trends for d- digital gender, sexual violence, and the way media and scholars of different genders or sexual orientations have treated these trends over time?
2: That's a big question, isn't it? It yeah, is. It's in a big
1: question. It's <laughs> really good question. That one. It's the yeah. yeah I don't know.
2: Um, should I, I make a start?
1: Yeah, you're you're very welcome to make a
2: start. Because I, yeah. I think it's a it's a really it's a really good question and really topical. Because uh, I'll start by by um, talking about my teaching experience. So I've been teaching this subject for um, I don't know thirty years, and I really noticed that young people today they come into the classroom with a much greater awareness and more advanced level of understanding about the issue so when I used to teach I I taught a module called intimate partner violence for decades and when I used to teach it then the first few weeks would be spent trying to convince the students that it was indeed a gendered phenomenon and that the perpetrators were mostly men and the victims were mostly women and there'd be a lot of back and forth about this throughout you know there'd be quite a lot of resistance about that Um, So this is kind of late 1990s onwards, whereas now in the last few years, and it's probably kind of in the post Me Too era, I notice that students who come to the classroom, they get it. They don't need persuasion about that. You know, they 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 often want to say yes, but what about when women are violent, or what about men's experiences? It's important to pay attention to that too. But they they understand it as a gendered ph- phenomenon, and they also have an understanding of it as a much wider phenomenon. So late nineteen nineties, I think there was still a kind of public perception, for example, of intimate partner violence as being about physical violence. It's some awareness of emotional abuse as well. But I think this term coercive control introduced by Evan Stark has really resonated. And um, certainly my my students have got an understanding of all kinds of gender-based violence as being about power and control. And again, they don't need convincing of that. They get it. So, I, I you know, I feel really cheered by that, actually. You know, writing the book um, meant that we were kind of immersed in some pretty grim material a lot of the time but every now and again you know I take my head out and think no things are changing because look look at how new generations of young people kind of approach the issue but I think that there are still pressures to degender discussions about the phenomenon and I think this happens probably more on a policy and a government level. I don't think it happens so much in scholarship and I think this is where scholarship's got a really important role to keep demonstrating with the use of evidence that the phenomenon is gendered and that we therefore need to take a gendered approach to um, looking at violence against women and girls. That We're not going to fix the problem unless we address the key feature of it which is ideas about the proper roles and behaviours of men and of women. So we're not going to address it unless we've got, um, to my mind, a a feminist understanding. I think there are also in the media and probably in government and policy, you see more kind of neoliberal understandings of gender-based violence or violence against women, which see it as an individual aberration which see it as, um, you know, the solution as being about liberating individual women or empowering them with, you know, what, whatever the latest gadget is to try to ward off, you know, an abusive man, you know, something you put over your drink or an alarm or, you know, double thickness knickers or, you know, all kinds of things that are introduced as if they're a, a remedy for the problem. And again, I think scholarship and activists, scholars and activists have just got a huge role to play here to keep showing that this phenomenon is structural. It's not uh, an individual problem. It's not a bad ap- about bad apples. It's not about an aberrant individuals. It's about the gender regime and how um, we 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 build and generate ideas about the proper role and behaviours and dynamics between men and women. So I think, you know, we're seeing, we're, we I've certainly seen changes. I know you, you will have too, Jeff. Um, and I think one of, actually, if I can just finish on um, one other interesting development that, that's really capturing my attention, which is work by abolitionist feminists um, talking about anti-carceral feminism, which I've got a lot of time for, although I'm not completely convinced about because I'm not certain about the alternatives. But one of the things that I notice is that when I was doing my PhD in the um late 90s, these were exactly the debates that I was engaging with. You know, they were they were talked about slightly differently, Um, but they were debates about whether the law, whether we can ever have faith in the justice system for providing justice. Um, when it comes to men's violence against women so it it feels in some ways as if we've come not quite full circle because each time you come back to a debate it's a new generation frames it in a slightly different way but it does it does make me wish in some ways that scholars who are looking at that work now would also look at some of the older work that that rehearsed these debates that is that are so important and so difficult to to resolve yeah so there are my observations jeff what changes have you seen if i have a
1: have a have a go i mean i think why this question and i'm i'm thinking whilst you were speaking ruth and (laughs) obviously i mean i think why this question is very complicated is that it's about lots of different things i mean it's partly about if you like, obviously what is going on in society and I will also say different societies and I think that's been one yeah. greater awareness. I mean, this perhaps sounds so obvious to say that I think a lot of debates in the, say, 70s and 80s were very national, very na- nationally located. So there's what's going on in society, then there's you know, then there's the whole sort of how that is represented or responded to media and government, as you mentioned. And then there's scholarship and then there's... Last, but probably should be first, activism. And, and, and there are changes in all of those, and they kind of interconnect with each other. I mean, the first thing I was involved in, I think this is right, was around sexual harassment, actually, with my, my dear late colleague Wendy Parkin in the late 70s, early 80s. That's what we were looking at in workplaces. And then, and then sort of, looking at child abuse, actually, and then men's violence against what we call known, known women with with again dear colleague Jan Hanma and, and others. And um, so in a sense, you know, the focus of actually studies can change for individual scholars. Um, but also I think there's something that's changed uh, I mean maybe this is now misremembering, but you know, when I think back to the eighties or even early nineties, I think there was more sort of attempt to separate both different kinds of violence from each other, Um, you know, there was sort of the psychologist doing something over there, and the sociologist doing something over there, or somewhere else, and there was a kind of narrower attempt to look at different kinds of violence separately, and I think, and also perhaps to look at, you know, say psychological explanations like versus cultural, or cultural studies explanations. Or, or political or even economic. But I think now there's there's more coming together of realising both how different kinds of violence connect with each other and also without being too sort of <laughs> over-positive, you might say, I think that there is, there is more work that is amongst scholars and activists as well, of course, looking across what you might call... Um, well, as a shorthand, different sort of disciplinary or positions you might say. I mean, I think there was more segmentation. I don't know if you agree with that, Ruth, but that's one sort of observation. But and then, of course, the other thing is that I mean, in terms of this focus of this particular book, obviously, I mean, I don't know, I mean, technology is not new, and actually, that's one thing we've actually written about a little bit and talked about amongst ourselves. I mean, technology. <laughs> And that's partly one one. That's one little argument, or big argument, why actually the, the term technological facilitated is not perfect either. Because I mean, you know, guns are technology, and and uh, knives are technology, and you know, pens are technology. But I mean, of course, there have been a, there has been a, a huge change in terms of digital technologies. I mean, one can date it perhaps from the I don't know middle nineties or something like that. Um, so, that, so the forms have changed as well, and, um, and of course that's also affected issues around pornography. I mean, I'm not a specialist researcher on pornography. Um, I've done some work, you, you can't avoid it, but I've, perhaps I have tried to avoid some kinds of pornography research actually. Um, but of course the whole, the, sorry, I should say commercial com- pornography industry has changed fantastically compared, say, well, historically, you can go back to 19th century or uh, centuries ago. But, of course, the technology, such as it is now, has transformed that. So the, the old-fashioned way of doing technology and also doing, whether you want to call it prostitution or sex work, that's a whole debate in itself, has also changed, obviously, massively, um, as well as, um, I mean, I do recall in the late 90s coming across the work Um, of Gail Dines, very important research in the U.S., um, which was cataloguing, was cataloguing, sorry, she was cataloguing these encyclopedic resources online about where men could, uh, let's say, buy women or buy women's bodies. Yeah, I mean, so that was a sort of encyclopedic sort of resource, you might say. Which uh, was obviously much more accessible than was the case in, say, even the seventies or eighties, relying on um, different kinds of written or telephone technologies. Yeah. Anyway, so I think there's more of these in- interconnections, plus also this transnational, con- this international connections have become very important. Sorry, Ruth, you're I saw you uh, well, waving just your hand point <laughs>
2: about, about transnational connections. Then um, I think you know. We, like many other researchers, have now a much more intersectional approach than, than was adopted in the 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, I must say, I think this is overstated sometimes. because yes, there was, yes I, agree. I agree. Particularly activism and practice was very often intersectional. You know, it was lesbian feminists Um of of different ethnicities. It was working class and middle class people working together. Um, People of marginalised ethnic identities and white women working together, you know, across, in solidarity, across these um, different sort of social divisions um, to set up a refuge or to have a campaign against sexual harassment in the workplace or whatever it might be. And I think, um, you know, I think you might agree, Jeff, that that the textbooks tell the story now that the second wave feminism was all about white middle class, um, straight women. And it is that is just simply not true. You know, there there was intersectional work going on. It wasn't called that because, of course, we didn't have that term then. But I think that you know, it's a great thing that we that we have a much more intersectional awareness of how these different systems of oppression work together with patriarchy to to prop each other up and to reinforce each other.
1: Mm. Well, it was gender, race, class, Angela Davis and many others.
0: Thank you so much for um, that answer. You already um, talked a little about intersectionality and interdisciplinarity when we talk about these um, uh, issues. So, one thing that I was interested in was the multimodal approach that you have taken in the book. So, could you speak a little bit about the significance of a multimodal approach for this kind of study or other studies for digital gender sexual violations or violence?
1: Shall I try briefly, Ruth? Have got... Yeah, it's funny you use the term multimodal. I don't know whether we use that in the book. I'm not sure. I <laughs> maybe we do, maybe we don't. Uh, but I think uh, it certainly fits, I think, because I think from the beginning... Actually, I think it, that approach is particularly important in the beginning and end of the book, actually, um, because the middle is more like particular examples, as, as was said, in like, like upskirting and and others. Um I think this goes back to a bit what I was trying to say, or we're both trying to say, is that it's very difficult to reduce you know, particular kinds of um, digital sexual, gen- gender sexual violation to one particular approach, you know, like psychological, cultural, um, political and so on. And um, uh, this actually creates problems, actually. <laughs> like, say, legal, you know, to try and reduce this to a legal problem is actually very difficult. And this is something that I think a lot of lawyers have been struggling with, actually. So these kinds of activities or these kinds of violences or violations, you know, I mean, they operate in lots of different ways at the same time. I mean, they they operate sometimes immediately, you know, instantly. You can send an abusive email to the other side of the world. Um but they also operate in a totally different way sometimes, where something is done that is not known about for five years or not sometimes n- never known about by the person or persons affected or is known about by their friends and neighbours and, or work colleagues, but not by themselves immediately. So, I mean, that's just one example of this immediacy, but also this sort of, you could say, time delay or even never knowing. Um, and then... Uh, I mean, one can look at this these phenomena and I think it's important to... And I don't know whether you agree with this exactly, Ruth. I mean, although we talk talked about this a lot, I mean, under this umbrella, there are lots of different kinds of phenomena as well, or activities. So one's got to be a bit... Not exactly open-minded, that's the wrong word, but sort of flexible in thinking about what kind of activity are we talking about? Is it, you know directed at someone who has been or is a partner or a best friend or is it something that is spread to um, let's say other men in general and and Ruth mentioned just briefly about upskirting how some of the ways of writing about that are actually very much men talking to other men or or men showing other men pictures or videos that they think are so-called and this might sound a bit weird, good quality in inverted commerce so again you know one, one sort of thinking about well some of this I mean upskirting to use that as an example clearly that is partly about objectifying or abusing or violating women with or without their knowledge <laughs> actually but it's also got something in the, that example is equally or yeah, important which is about men's relationship to men almost like regardless of, of women where women or girls and also uh, can be the currency, if you like, for communication uh, in, in, a, in a sort of a way that sometimes might be thought about as what goes on, like sort of so-called banter. Uh, verbal banter can become sort of uh, converted, inverted commas, into sort of images, if that makes sense. I'm not stretching the metaphor too much. So anyway, so the, I mean, yeah, this is just some examples of, of how having a, yeah, what you nicely call multimodal or a sort of multi-dimensional uh, and intersectional and, um, you know, thinking about this also as being both in media and local and in a national context but also increasingly transnational as well. That's some, some thoughts, yeah.
2: And just to note too that the um, it, it raises difficulties about how you research this phenomenon or these phenomena because um, it almost feels that anything you write about it is out of date pretty soon after you've written it. I probably shouldn't say this about our book, which we obviously want people to read and, and not think of as out of date. But the, the different um, forms techniques of violation are changing and developing all the time we talk about some emerging ones about um, like Jeff mentioned using AI for so-called deep fake um, pornography um, amongst others and but but things are changing and developing all the time I mean it's one of the things about that's really noticeable about um, abuse of men's use of the um, digital world is that that they are exploiting technology um and the digital world you know with tremendous kind of knowledge and flexibility and creativity um and it's and it's therefore quite difficult to keep up with that and it also means that if you're it's quite hard to get longitudinal data on things because the you know the early research about online abuse used you know, a certain range of terminologies, which 10 years later were kind of out of date. So research 10 years later used a different range of terminology. So it's then quite difficult to compare, for example, prevalence rates in those t- two different um, points of time, 10 years apart, because they're exploring slightly different things or perhaps, ten, you know, at the earlier point, sending, you um, uh, so-called dick pics, sending abusive images, wasn't wasn't so common. Ten years later, it's really common. So it wasn't just dis- um, explored earlier on. So it, it presents some methodological challenges as well as kind of um, more sort of conceptual challenges, as as Jeff has suggested.
1: Perhaps just one quick thing to sort of add to that, which perhaps we haven't mentioned enough because it's perhaps so obvious, <laughs> which is the basic issue of talking about things being in real life and or virtual and being online or offline. I mean, maybe this is so obvious perhaps, but I mean, that's, I mean, those very words, I mean, everyone knows what they mean, I think, in real life and virtual, but they're both and online and offline. But what goes on is more complex than that. And of course, what happens virtually or online, if you want to call that, or, of course, you know, obviously has major physical bodily effects. I know this perhaps is too obvious, but that is a sort of major theme, I think, running through the book and through these debates, which actually are, are, is complicated both like legally, for instance, and also analytically and politically as well, actually, as well.
2: Yeah, I, I think it is really important to mention that, actually, Jeffy, even, even though it seems so, so obvious, because it, it explains partly why, for example, police have been so slow to respond to online abuse, because there was kind of a sense of, well, it's just just don't read it. Just don't go on those websites, just come off social media. You know, there wasn't a recognition of the very kind of embodied visceral um, impact that um, digital violations can have, as well as... Um, an impact on one's freedom and safety because of course there is you know they are not neat discrete categories the online bleeds into the offline Of you know many um abusive abusive partners will use both online and offline um forms of abuse they're not they're not separate activities by any means
0: yeah 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 definitely um thank you so much for the comprehensive answer and you already kind of like led to this question now one thing that i was really intrigued by um was the chapter that discusses online abuse of feminists so i was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that to our audience
2: sure um well to start with and um we must acknowledge the work um, of Mike Rowe and Claire Wiper, who I did the original research with on that project, although, you know, my thinking on the on the subject has really benefited from Jeff and Matthew's um, from collaborating with Jeff and Matthew. So we, um, Mike, Claire and I did a, a small research project, which was the first national victim survey of um, people who engage in feminism and their experiences of online abuse so it was in the relatively early days of online abuse but it was inspired by seeing the um, abuse that that women generally were were exposed to but feminists seem to be particularly picked out for it and of course women and feminist women aren't the only people to experience abuse men experience you know plenty of abuse online as well but what's distinct is that when women experience abuse it very quickly targets their gender targets their bodies becomes sexualized and uses kind of um gendered patriarchal tropes so the nature of the abuse directed at women and directed at men is different so we wanted to explore more about that Um, so the survey asked people about their own experiences and we got loads of data about both the kind of what you might call the everyday um abuses you know some people saying oh it happens every day it's so so normal i hardly notice it any longer um others said it you know it, it occurs occasionally and it's shocking others said Um, You know, it was the volume of abuse that they'd experienced that was really um, significant. So receiving thousands of messages from hundreds or thousands of people, mostly men and boys, um, you know, the the sense of an onslaught was really um, significant. So one thing that that we really wanted to explore was this idea of a continuum of violence, because up until that point, the media had talked only really about the really, the sort of so-called sledgehammer events, what Betsy Stanker calls the sledgehammer events, so that you know the um, the cases, the GamerGate, um, Caroline Criado Perez in in the UK, you know, people who'd been subjected to really um, high volume um, abuse, but we knew too that there was a much more sort of, in inverted commas, mundane, routine kind of form of abuse that some women were receiving um much less voluminous um abuse but it was still part of their life it was almost like the wallpaper of their life online so um, we wanted we gathered information about the nature of it and the um the the, the kind of key features about you know as i say then the, the abuse very quickly becomes sexualized becomes gendered in some cases it's also racialized and it refers to people's sexuality, i.e., you know, um, it's it's homophobic abuse as well. So it's it's not only it's not misogyny on its own. So so we did this survey, and we had intended to do a whole bunch of interviews, but in fact, we got such rich qualitative data from the surveys. We needed to do a smaller sample of interviews, but we did do some interviews with women too, and so these were all. Um, women who engaged in feminist debate online. Um, We had had the the survey was open not just to women um, but we had a very small number of men and um, non-binary people complete the survey so in terms of the analysis we focused on women's experiences Um, and there were women who engaged in debate sometimes you know for several hours a day sometimes kind of an hour a week kind of thing Um, one of the things that was a clear finding was that the platform on which they experienced most abuse was Twitter. And I think that has real implications given the changes at Twitter now and, um, you know, less uh, opportunity to um, police abusive um, content um, throws up real risks, I think, for for people using Twitter. Um, And we also looked at the impact because at that time, there was a lot of talk about online abuse um, being designed to silence women. And clearly it does silence some women. But what we found from the survey was that many of the women felt galvanised to engage further in feminist politics because they felt that you know, the experience of online abuse did nothing but prove the need for a feminist um, debate online and, and more than just a debate. So that was, a, you know, a useful finding that it that it doesn't simply silence women or, and feminists. It also um, it also leads to more solidarity online, more activism online, more feminist uh, debate online between women and and with men too. And and then finally, we we also talk in that chapter about the function of online abuse of feminists. And put simply, we can interpret it, interpret the function as being about a desire to exclude women from the online world. Um, and Sia Pera, in fact, talks, I, I think draws really useful parallels with the witch hunts of the 16th and 17th century. And she says that there the uh, witch hunts served a purpose to get women to conform to the new institutions or the ongoing institutions in society at a time of change from feudalism to capitalism. And she draws a parallel that now we're moving from capitalism to techno capitalism. And this online abuse of feminists is um, about preventing feminists and women more generally from having access to technological resources, from having a role to play in the means of production of the techno capitalism so it it can be seen as a way to exclude women, particularly women who don't conform to patriarchal norms i e women who speak out, women who express feminist politics, women who don't um conform to gendered expectations but but one thing just finally is that we we can assume that the motivation is misogynistic, and it's you know it's probably hard to deny that. But it's likely to be more complex than that. And and in fact, one of the respondents who's quoted in the chapter noted that there might be other power dynamics at play in some of the abuse directed at, at feminists online. Um, and they refer to the conviction of, I think, the first conviction in the UK of people for online abuse. Um we, and she reflects that, you know, they, they did not look to be powerful people. They, one was a woman, one was a man. They did not look as if they had um, high status, you know, from what we can tell. So there might well be other aspects of power at play, you know, in terms of class, in terms of public status, in terms of authority. So misogyny is a feature of the explanation of online abuse against feminists, but it might not be the only one. And again, we need a kind of um, intersectional approach to understanding why that kind of abuse happens online. So, sorry, that's maybe quite a long-winded um, answer, but I don't know if it addresses what you are particularly interested in.
0: No, definitely. Um, thanks for providing a comprehensive answer to that. Would you like to add anything to that, Jeff?
1: No, no, that's fine, no. I maybe mean, one thing, I think now there's quite a lot of work on journalism, journalists actually yeah particularly in some countries being targeted
0: yeah, yeah. for sure definitely yes and um, since you already mentioned like other different countries and you already kind of like talked a little bit about how uh, these conversations are more transnational now as opposed to the maybe like 70s 80s 90s when these conversations are more national i was wondering if you could speak a little more about the issues of gender and sexual violence in a transnational context
1: Shall i have a Short go- yeah. Well, um, I think I said earlier that um, now these debates cannot really be looked at only locally or nationally. I think that's become pretty obvious, really. Um, and also, I think when one talk about transnational, I mean that can mean different things in itself. I mean it can simply mean sending a message across borders, if you like, across national borders. Or be- it can also mean the uh, sort of some sort of change in to what extent people are thinking about these issues or, or you know, sort of in a local or national context um, or picking up on different techniques of abuse from different parts of the world and then re-employing them uh, in somewhere else. And what you might call sort of creating either a transnational well, I just word culture as a shorthand, either for different kinds of abuse, but also for different kinds of activism against abuse um, as well. So it works sort of two ways, at least. Um, and then one's got, like, who's doing the abuse in, as individuals or groups and how that, you know, how that links to the sort of... ..who, who runs the platforms, you know, corporately, or, you know, who, who actually... And they are often, well that they are virtually always some kind of transnational organisation or or business of some kind. Um, And then there's the problem, again, going back to sort of transnational legal um, issues, which obviously are very difficult. I mean, I think these issues are being picked up to some extent within the, the European Union, which is a pretty you know, a large transnational organisation, but it's far from straightforward. So I mean that's to I think all those things are going on and they're changing. And um I mean neither of us or none of none of the three of us are lawyers. Um although we've actually had we've actually had contact with lawyers or legal those dealing with this issue in, in the UK particularly and they're struggling with this as and not least how to actually Build in issues of gender and sexuality and racialization into what often is easiest presented as sort of neutral in anti commerce law. So, I mean, I think these are some of the things which now cannot be avoided. Which, again, it's going back. It's perhaps one difference or apparent difference to situations in the seventies and eighties when there was less of these kinds of um, uh, abuses. Yeah, that's. At some points, yeah. I should say, I mean, Matthew and I have actually written on this separately. We've also written quite a lot of different things <laughs> in different permutations, like on upskirting as, and on transnational, uh, specifically. And uh, and uh, Ruth has written with colleagues, as you said, on, on the abuse of feminists. So there's quite a lot of overlapping patterns, you might say, going on here. But the transnational thing is part of it, and I think also it links to what is what is happening with different kinds of, you could call it, emerging abuses, which you mentioned already around, you know, AI and virtual reality and deep fakes and various combinations and synthetic realities and so on and so forth. And that's actually, we do discuss this a bit in the book, but actually that's, it's a shame Matthew's not here, actually, Matthew Hall, because I would say Matthew is the most expert on that area and that's something we're, the three of us are working on now in terms of this more you might call immersive or virtual even sort of limitless abuse where you don't actually need the bodies of women or you don't need the bodies of particular women perhaps i should say um to create um those kind of violating environments Um, and that's takes you into some different issues actually um which we could talk about but i hope you get the i'm sure you know what i what i mean by this yeah yeah
0: all right, thank you. Would you like to add anything to that, Ruth? No, no, that's, that's great. great. Awesome. So, <laughs> sorry, yeah. OK, so you already um, mentioned some of these issues and mentioned how Matthew would have been a better person to talk about it. But I'm just going to pose the question anyway. Can you speak a little bit about how acts of violence like deep fake pornography, spy camming, cyber flashing, etc., work across different poster post T permutations? That you mentioned in your book, like you talk about, you know, like men to men, men against
2: women.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you want to comment, Ruth, on this part?
2: Should,
1: um, should I have a go? I,
2: I think I'd rather you did. OK.
1: <laughs> OK. It well, I mean, this is so it's it's repeating some comments from half an hour ago, I guess. I mean, it's about thinking about this as a very broad area that's changing, and there are different forms, you might say. And some are very direct, like somebody sends, like, you know, at a certain time and place an abusive email to somebody else. Uh, Or they may record something that they send to somebody else. Or they may uh, record it and then not send it and send it later. Or they may take images and reuse them without consent. So there's many, many permutations here. Um... And that can be done individually or it can be done collectively, if you like, uh, both collectively in the doing and, or collectively in the receiving, and it can be instant uh, or it can be delayed, the repeat, and it can, I mean, it's very difficult to remove certain things totally from the Internet, it is possible, but it's, that's not so easily so things stay there, or they can be fleeting, or they can be, be ambiguous, sorry, this is just a series of possibilities, But then one moves, um, well, we've talked a bit about upskirting and perhaps we should just say a word on that again, is that we looked at various platforms or um, discussion forums, you might call them. It sounds a bit strange thing to say, where men share their images and videos they've recorded. And um, actually, I have to put it, it's a way of gaining status in that community and and we ended up, well, one of the things we did, we used, which was a bit controversial, a bit risky, we taught, we used the term polite misogyny. This might sound very strange, because the relations, they were obviously, as I said earlier, objectifying women and violating women. But actually, some of the conversation was very polite between the men. So it was misogynistic, but it was very polite. And it was like giving praise to each other, <laughs> Sometimes for, you know, very great skill, so to speak, in, in doing this. And, of course, you can make comparisons with, with other kinds of homosocial spaces, whether they're um, more or less polite or, or more, more or less rude. I mean, one could talk about this in, say, I don't know, so-called locker room talk, you know, and so on. So, I mean, that's something which is definitely relevant but a bit different to the way sometimes these, thing, these things are seen. And then when one gets into this more yeah virtual reality area um well I mean there there there's there's many possibilities as as you know and I mean there there's a creation of a, of a well a different a different reality that and say um, may use parts of um and I use the word parts deliberately of of women or um to create that reality, but actually once that's done, that can be reproduced or replicated and, and elaborated on, just like any any other. And of course, this is also not just visual, and increasingly we're talking here about multisensory possibilities, including ha- uh, touch or haptic, to use the, the jargon. And um, uh, and uh, as I say, that's something we're working on now, or gradually working on, which is this these possibilities of multi sensory virtual realities that are creating what well, are abusive and creating the conditions for further abuse with or without actual women's bodies so that's a going quite a long way really from where you know where one began and quite a long way from some of the things that have been done uh, you know historically uh, let's say let's call it pre this te- these technologies um i mean you know yeah, maybe I'll leave it at that. Yeah, that's that's some. I mean, now one last thing we haven't mentioned, which I think is also really important. And again, we're working on this, uh, the three of us, with another colleague, Charlotte Niemistö in in Hanken uh, in Finland, which is about location. <laughs> and so, I mean, when one talks about these things, it's often talked about in terms of uh, partners, ex-partners, friends, acquaintances, etc. But also, there's the added complication of, does this relate to, let's say, um, workplaces specifically, you know, um, maybe colleagues or ex-colleagues? Does it relate to, say, um, sports clubs or leisure, leisure clubs or religious organisations? I mean, so the kind of other locations that are perhaps a bit different to sort of people's domestic or personal sexual life or their friendship groups... I think, you know, I think are very, very important and and they complicate these issues even more in all sorts of ways that we could talk about for hours, actually, because we're writing on that as well. Um, How does this relate if, for example, one person in a work team experiencing this and then do the other colleagues of that person, in a sense, try and support that person and does that, you know, does that affect them as kind of secondary abuse Uh, or reactivation uh, um, in some cases.
2: uh, um, Or do they just carry on
1: working as if nothing, you know, in order to support the person, they carry on working regardless in a so-called normal, inverted commas, way. So these location issues or organisation issues are very, very important. Sorry, And and they
2: throw up, you know, really important questions about who has responsibilities here in terms of employers,
0: um,
2: particularly, which is perhaps kind of one of the the last domains I think to really um, uh, sort of explore the responsibilities that that, that there are amongst employers um, to address gender-based violence yeah
1: yeah yeah so it's not just governments or yeah. public policy it's yeah institutions organizations universities mm-hmm. employers as you say and so on and so forth yeah religious yeah. organizations. Yeah.
0: Cool. Thank you. Um, next question that I was curious about is how did you co-write a book? There are, you know, <laughs> like three of you, then you have other people who are contributing to, you know, like, uh, for example, you mentioned um, that you had contributors for the chapter about abuse against feminists and uh
2: I was just curious about like how do you manage that? Like, what does that look like? <laughs> well, thank God for email and um and Teams, um which is mostly how we did it, isn't it? You know, after the initial first meeting, then um, there was lots of email communication, uh, lots of Teams meetings, lots of sharing of chapters and ideas and so on, um and it it worked it it worked really seamlessly. I think I hope uh, it. I oh, hope it reads seamlessly because you know it's written by three people with slightly different writing styles, and we didn't um, we didn't spend a lot of time kind of um, trying to find a kind of a, a, a shared writing style. Um, but we would each take um, the lead on one aspect of um, of the book of a chapter or a section of a chapter, um, and then merge. Um, Merge together the contributions and then, you know, review it back and forth over email, um, having having conversations along the way, you know, so using kind of the comments um, sidebar on Word documents was invaluable. Um, and, you know, big, big thanks and big acknowledgement to Matthew, who led the whole process um and and kept us kept us in line kept us in check and um, <laughs> yes. i must say that you know writing with people who where you you know you've obviously got a shared um kind of approach and a shared goal but also where <laughs> writing with people who are really reliable and who you know there are various stages and one of us would have something going on and mm. somebody else would step in and it you know it just felt like um Like, great teamwork in that respect, really. So despite the fact that we were dealing with really, really grim material, um, you know, there was was real pleasure in the writing process itself, I think. Nice. That sounds great. Yes.
0: Can
1: I add to to that? Yeah. Well, I'd I'd say, yeah, I think um, there's, like, a history as well. You know, I mean, yeah, this isn't just something of the last couple of years. We didn't meet at all, actually, during the writing, apart from... This initial meeting in Helsinki was by chance, and we just talked, I think, for an hour or so, um, but not about the, this book, actually. I don't think so. No, um, I mean, I would say that, yeah, putting aside the material, it's been very enjoy- i mean, very enjoyable to, to work together with Ruth and Matthew. Absolutely, it's been—it's been, I wouldn't say easy, but it's been—it's been, it's been pl- pleasant despite the unpleasant material. But, I mean, perhaps the other thing which I don't think we've said, I mean, perhaps it's fair to say we do have different, uh, well, we've got different ideas, of course, yeah, and and we have different um, locations, including uh, geographically, uh, Matthew actually works in Egypt, actually, so Matthew's in Egypt, Ruth is in UK, and I'm in, in Finland, and... Um, I think Finland and Egypt, the same time zone, actually, which helps at least <laughs> slightly. But um, but Matthew's background is, I mean, he is, his background at least is psychology, or, or particularly, especially discourse or discursive psychology. Um, my background's a bit of a mixture. I don't know. It's sort of geography originally and sociology and social policy, gender studies and... Even organisations. Do you want to say? Can I say what your background is, Ruth? Or would you want to talk about it
2: I take mine is sociology yeah. with a bit of criminology and sociological, criminology, yeah,
0: yeah, and I'd gender studies as bit, well. Yeah. So
2: yeah, there was you know if if you had a Venn diagram of the three of us, then there would be some mm. nice overlap, but also some distinct areas, which also mm. I think really helps on a writing project, doesn't it? That you know you're you're bringing different things to the um, mm. project. Mm. Mm. Yeah,
1: yeah, but we all went through everything in the book i mean i mean yeah some person one person you yeah more or less led on each chapter more or less but then everybody went through everything and amended or disagreed or whatever yeah so i think it is a yeah i think it was sort of consensual (laughs) eventually it wasn't always initially in the first first round but yeah i think that's I think that's true. I mean, I think so, more or less. Maybe that explains the multimodal, sorry, multimodalness as a way of dealing with that issue, maybe, maybe.
0: Yeah, definitely. The book does read quite seamlessly, and oh, it good. seems like you make a wonderful interdisciplinary team, which also helps a lot. So my last question for you is, how do you suggest academics and readers approach this book? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Sh-
1: should I st- start? Yeah, go, you and go ahead, you, uh, John yeah well i think hmm, there's probably quite a few things but the two two things occurred to me sort of straight off, uh, and this might be a bit idealistic but i would like people to approach it in some sort of dialogue actually because i mean maybe this goes back to the multimodal again actually because there are different angles on this Uh, without repeating, you know, I've said earlier, and different people may be drawn to different angles, like, you know, the legal side, the cultural side, the psychological side. So I think I'd be interested in people reading this a bit in dialogue and, you know, taking or disagreeing or agreeing or, or developing some angles or a combination of angles. That's one thing. I think the other thing, I mean... Which is a bit different is there are different parts to the book actually i mean so some of it is about methodology and some of it is about changing forms of online or violation etc cetera, etc cetera. um and some of it's about legal issues so some people might just be interested in different parts more than other parts i mean you know if one's interested yeah and that could be also relevant i suppose to like if you're teaching in this area With students or whatever, you know, one chapter methodology might be of interest as an example of how how not to do things, which wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be something that some people who are more interested in law would go into. I mean, that's perhaps a trivial example, a bad example, but yeah, there are two things that come to mind. At least, Um, I'd also be I'd like people to, to debate more around the relations actually of sex, gender, and sexuality actually personally. I think that is still not discussed. Of course, it's been discussed hugely. Of course, it has. <laughs> but I think, I think that relation between sex, gender, sexuality, and whether, or sexual, and whether those words are really quite good enough. Actually, mm. this might sound a bit weird, but I think, mm. yeah, that's that's yeah, some thoughts. So
2: I, I think it's very much about what do these forms of digital violations tell tell us about the gender sexual order you know so it's, it's not it well it may be, it is multi-layered i suppose I, I was going to say it's not just about the technologies of violations but it, it is clearly about that but it's also about how they are sexed and genders and what they tell us about the gendered sexual uh, order of this moment in time as well so i hope people will also read it as um, a, a, an account of um, the phenomenon at this point in time, which in 10 years' time will be will be different, but I hope it, it stands as a, as a useful kind of record of, of where we were at this point in time.
0: Great. Thank you so much. And thanks a lot for this wonderful conversation about your book, Digital Gender Sexual Violations violence technologies motivations. I look forward to interacting with more of your work in the future.